you guys should think about coming up one day on some Sunday night to, to, do, to just talk about this podcast on my show if for oh. nothing else. Let me know when you're free. It'd be a pleasure. Yeah, okay. I mean, it'd be fun, too. You do it live, right? Yeah. Sunday evening. Sundays evening. are usually yeah, good easy for me. To, yeah, Sunday's Sunday. Sunday. show's yeah. 9 to 11, Sunday night, and yeah. it's easy, easy driving at that time. Okay, yeah. so we got a date. Okay. All right. Well, welcome, friends and fans, to Booth One. This is our 82nd episode, Yikes. and oh, boy, do we have a treat in store for you today. Gary Zabinski and Frank Taranjo, your hosts here. Hiya, Frank. How you doing? How was your drive-in? My drive-in was horrible. Um, <laughs> I hit construction and a train, yeah. so I got yeah. almost the trifecta. You didn't hit the train. You just no, no. I hit it. Freight hit, train. Hit waiting for a train. Yeah. If I'd had an I'm accident, so that would have been the threesome. I'm so sorry. But just two out of three. Yeah. It took me an hour and a half to get here from Wheaton. I just walked from the living room to here. That was my <laughs> transport. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get one of these setups at my house, then we can go back and forth. Well, Frank, you ready for our guest today? I am. Our guest in the booth today is one of the most iconic Chicago personalities you're likely ever to find. Mm -hmm. Journalist, author, historian, and radio personality, Mr. Rick Kogan is with us today. Hi, Rick. Hi. You can add that I don't know how many of your guests have actually gotten drunk in the original booth one, (laughs) but I would be among that uh, relatively small crowd. Uh And, and, And it still exists. Yes, because it went to Irv Cupsonit's house. That's right. Because the actual that is booth, the actual booth, uh-huh. it was in his living room. God, the adventures that Cup had had in that place. It was. Mm-hmm. I mean, but before it moved out of the pump room, it was still there as the pump room was kind of fading away under, sadly, under Richard Melman, who mm. made the pump room his first classy joint after a strange name like Jonathan Livingston Sifu yeah, yeah. and, remember and R.J. Grunts. Yeah, I remember and, those. Uh, yeah, but now it's at the History Museum. It, at the History Museum, it does not look as impressive as it once did, it, it or doesn't. as I thought it was. It doesn't, but it's kind of cool to see, and the fact that it actually still exists is... Oh, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, because it might induce people to find out what the hell it was, and who mm-hmm. sat there, and... Why Morris the Cat, during the bad final days of the Pump Room's fame, and for Christ's sake, Morris the Cat ate <laughs> cat food in Booth One. And not, not exactly a bogey and Bacall. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, you're famous far and wide, especially here in our fair city of Chicago. But tell our listeners who may not be familiar with you, a little bit about where you grew up, and if you can, how you got your name. I grew up in a in a very literary household. My, my father was an author and a lifelong newspaper man. My mother worked for the Tribune for a while before going to become a publicist for Doubleday in the days when you could have incredible book parties, one book party. I'm gonna get so off track that your job, fellas, is to keep me on track. <laughs> one book party, Arthur Haley had written the book airport. So for the modest book party, my mother hired a plane, a big regular plane to take a bunch of drunken freebie hound reporters of which I am a proud (laughs) member, but it was before my time. The book party was, come on fellas, meet us at hangar eight at O'Hare, get on the plane, booze it up, meet Arthur Haley, get a free copy of his book, and then write about his book. The glory days of publicity. My parents met in a bar called Ricardo's. 
which was named after a, uh, a wild Italian artist and saloon keeper named Rick Ricardo. And they Rick, met not the Ricky Ricardo. From no, he was Rick. <laughs> okay. So I they met. They in. met there in 1948. It was a place, you know. They hung out there with Studs and Ida, and it was a a newspaper hangout, an advertising person's hangout, and a hangout for the artsy kind of crowd. I didn't realize that I was named. They were great friends of Rick's, and they babysat his kids, Rick Jr. and the, their daughter was named Russia, as an example. Oh my their politics, yes, wow. their politics. <laughs> Yeah, Russia Ricardo. It's a great name. I mean, <laughs> that is a that really is a fantastic is. name. It's a yeah. good name. It's like something right out of a novel. Mm-hmm. And so when I was when I happened, I was in fourth grade at South School, growing up in uh, Old Town, and a woman named Mrs. Corrigan on the first day of class uh, had everybody introduce themselves, and I'm Rick Cogan, and she goes, No, no, you're Richard Cogan. Rick is just a nickname. And I said, well, I'm not sure, Mrs. Corgan. I I think my real name is Rick. That's nonsense. I made the mistake of going home to tell my mom this. Everything in fourth grade is embarrassing, especially having your mother take you to school the next day to confront your teacher. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where she explained to the teacher that my real legal name was R-I-C-K. Okay, that settled that. A few years later, many years later, I realized and she said that I had been named after a dear friend of theirs uh, named Brooke Ricardo. So a few years later, when I'm 12, let's say, I realized that Rick Ricardo spelled his name R-I-C in the classic Italian way of spelling Rick. I went to my mother with that and said, Mom, I'm not quite sure I understand what's going on here. He's Rick Ricardo. I am R-I-C-K. Why would you put a K on the end of my name. She goes, well, we didn't want to be unconventional. I said, you named me after a barkeeper. How much more unconventional can you get? So that's that story. And I was always certainly drawn to the newspaper game. Sure. You're speaking of your your parents, Herman and uh, Mary Mary Lou. Lou, were both writers deeply involved in Chicago history and the personalities of Chicago. You couldn't go anywhere and not know about Herman and Mary Lou. Did you want to be a writer and a journalist from a very early age? I I understand that you didn't go to college. I did not. For studying writing or journalism. I did not, no. Uh, My brother did, and he went to Medill School of Journalism, and the only time he spent in journalism with three summer internships working for the Tribune. He graduated from Medill. He got offered a job at the Tribune, and shockingly, my father said, we're going to lunch, we're going to celebrate Mark's getting a job. We went to the Ringley Building restaurant, and we sat there. I was driving a cab at the time, and uh, it was pretty down and out. My pockets were just filled with change. <laughs> uh, and Mark uh, said, well, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take the job. My father was telling stories. Well, I'll never forget my first job offer at $12.25 a week at City News, and we're so proud of you. And Mark's like, well, I'm not taking the job. What are you going to do? Well, I've started uh, contracting some of the football players. If you guys could have seen my father's face, I've started contracting some of the football players to be security for rock concerts that we're having at Northwestern. And my father's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> he went in the rock music business and wound up as a, uh, he wound up managing the stadium for Jerry Weintraub. Oh, wow. He wound up being Frank Sinatra's road manager for, I don't know, for four years. Mm. Sticks, Bob Dylan, 
every big rock act of the 70s and 80s, Mark Kogan was managing Elvis. He did Elvis's last tour. Wow. He is the guy. Yeah, let's talk about my my brother <laughs> yeah. instead of me. Sure because it's a much more interesting <laughs> guy. I don't know about that. So he's, he's on the road with Sinatra. And he gets to Alpine Valley in Wisconsin uh, a few hours before Frank going from Popular O'Hare. outdoor music oh, venue. Oh, it was, yeah. a, it yeah. was yeah. a great yeah. place. Yeah. Great it was place. a great place in the day. And Frank is arriving by private plane at Mitchell Field in Milwaukee, and he's going to come there by escorted limousine by the Wisconsin State Police. Mark is there, and the phone rings backstage, and it's Jerry Weintraub, the entrepreneur of all entrepreneurs. And he said, Mark, I, I got some really bad news. Elvis has died. They just found him dead in his house in uh, Graceland. And Mark, oh, I was just out on tour with him, Mr. Weintraub. I'm so sorry. I feel terrible. I knew he wasn't in good shape. Mark, you have to tell Frank. No cell phones. <laughs> yeah, right. You're, you have to tell Frank. Eventually, Frank pulls up in the limousine. Mark is terrified. He walks up to Sinatra and says, Mr. Sinatra, as he always called him, I have some terrible news for you. Elvis has died. And he said, Frank just turned ashen and went backstage and sat at a card table with a telephone. And here's the part of the story that I one day want to build either a movie or a short story out of. Who was Frank Sinatra calling for six hours? I guess he wanted to be the first one to tell Sammy and Dean and Angie Dickinson and (laughs) Juliet Prowse. I don't know. His children, his ex-wife. Yeah, yeah. Ava Gardner, yeah. Uh, that story, it's one of the great footnotes in the history mm. of, of American music, and my brother was at the very, very center of it. But back to me. I did not go to college. I, uh, it was 1969, and I thought I knew everything about everything, and I really, having watched the convention the year earlier mm-hmm. and watched it up close and pretty personally, I just thought there was too much going on in Chicago, and I wanted to be sort of part of this astonishing, lively, and dispiriting city. So I convinced my father, the best thing he ever did, my father was a a three-year Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of Chicago during the Depression, living in Rogers Park and working the whole way, midnight to eight for the city news bureau. It makes Lincoln walking with bare feet nothing to me. <laughs> really? He yeah. could have guilt driven me back to college in five seconds, and he didn't. He said, what do you want to do? So I want to you know, drive a cab and sort of see what life's all about. So I did, and I thought this would be a wonderful experience to get stories and to meet people, and <laughs> I was dissuaded of that almost immediately. I'd say, yes, sir, you'd like to go to, uh, you know, take me to LaSalle and Adams, okay. Why do you go? Why are you going there? Are you a banker or a stockbroker? Shut up and drive. And that was <laughs> basically all the stories I was trying to mine yeah. were put on that level. Shut yeah. up and drive, no matter what I asked. No yeah. matter what I asked. And then eventually, just, you know, I did my whole kind of Hemingway goes to Europe thing when it was really cheap to go. I had saved up enough money to go to Europe and wandered around and wound up living in Spain for almost a year and wrote some really horrible short stories, but, <laughs> but, but sold a travel piece to the Tribune about Dover, England, of all places, one of the places I'd stopped. And I'll never forget, this is 1971 or two, getting $160 
for this piece, getting sent a check for $160 when I was paying $40 a month, a month in rent for this very nice, actually very nice apartment in a little town called Estepona, Spain. So in my naivete, I thought, wow, this is great. So as I grow up and write more stories, this being the first, I'll get every story will be worth four months' rent. When I'm living in a $1,000 place, I'll probably get $4,000 for this story. <laughs> Didn't work out that way. <laughs> not, <laughs> not at all, but it was, a good, it was a good year. I did come back and yeah. uh, toy with Columbia College because my father was great friends with Mike Alexandrov. And I went in, the first class there was uh, a reviews and criticism class, and everybody in the class, to a person, wanted to be on television or on the radio. And I said that, I, I, and I quit after one day. That was my, that was my college experience. Yeah. Frank, you uh, mentioned uh, Ricky Ricardo a little while ago. A little news piece I wanted to mention here as part of our continuing popular culture update for mm-hmm. our listeners. There is a new National Comedy Center opening. Oh, really? In Jamesville, New York. You know what Jamesville, New York is is, famous for? Yes, Lucy's birthplace. (laughs) It is indeed. Mm -hmm. Opening August 1st, it gives interactive tours of comedians from Chaplin to Chappelle. You go in and you get a personalized wristband with a barcode on it. And it asks you questions about what kind of comedy you like, what comics you like, what history, period of history you like, your comedy, if you like slapstick or you like Eddie Murphy or something. And you plug all of these things into this computer and then you enter the building. And as you go around in each display, it reads the barcode on your wristband and it gives you a personalized experience of walking around. Oh my God, that's interesting. Doesn't that sound fantastic? Opening August 1st in Jamesville, (laughs) New York, um, home of uh, Of Lucy. Lucy. They have a terrible, terrible statue of her there, don't they? Isn't it really? They took it down. They they? built a new one. Yeah, that's right. It was was a horrible one. Lucille Ball is a monster, (laughs) right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, it was called... Big bulgy eyes. Yeah, it was not good, but they got rid of it and they, they put a new one up. But yeah, that is her birthplace and every year they do Lucy Desi Days around her birthday, which I believe is August 6th. And then there's all kinds of other Lucy stuff there. So if people are coming for that, having a comedy museum or whatever there is is perfect. I went to two I Love Lucy conventions in the early, I taught a class on it at College of DuPage. You don't um, have to make excuses. No, no, you this can is, go to a Lucy but, convention. No, no. It's fine with us. But I brought my classes with me is what I'm saying. Yeah, and is so, there a lot of dress up? I mean, are there a lot of people there dressed as Lucille Ball? Not really. No. They had some impersonators. Back then, this was the early 2000s, 2000 and 2001 I think I went. And some of the people from the show were still alive. But the director oh, wow. was still alive. A couple of the actors in some of the minor roles were alive. Certainly Desi and Lucy Jr. were there. Little Ricky was there one year. And so I'm not sure how many of those people are still around, but her hairdresser, who I know has since passed away, Irma Coosley, was there. And they all told stories. They held it, it was in L.A., and now they've shifted it to uh, to Jamestown. Tickets range from $12.50 for general admission. Not bad. Up to $30, and that gets you not only admission into the center, but also into the special Lucy exhibit. 
which oh. they've also built there. Maybe they've uh, incorporated I thought it sounded the like two. a fantastic yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they've incorporated both together. I don't know. Unless there's a loose. Where is Jamestown right. from New York? From Manhattan? It's quite a ways. Yeah, it's on the. Six uh, hours it's or it's so. just it's it's, on the Canadian border. It's or close way up to there? Lake Erie. Oh wow! Yeah. You fly to Buffalo and you go there, right. and then right. take, right. rent a car or something. Right. So it's up take in that drive. area. Although technically, she was not born in Jamestown. She was born in a little town next to it. But Jamestown is the big town right there. That's done. Jamestown's trying to co-opt. They have they town. have co-op. They've become <laughs> yeah. Because I think on the show they talked about her being born in Jamestown. Rick, you've done a number of radio talk shows in your career programs, I should say, not talk shows. But it's a as we know now, podcasting. This is a this is a brave new radio world. It uh, is. And I think it. I actually absolutely think podcasting is the future of radio. Well, there we go. Yeah, well, and good. you guys are at the forefront. <laughs> right. We are, and we've been doing it for four years now. <laughs> you currently do a show called After Hours with Rick Kogan on Sunday nights at nine o'clock yeah. Central Time on WGN Radio. Yep, you've talked to personally and on the radio and written about. Well, dare I say, tens and tens of thousands of personalities, probably. Well, I wouldn't call them all personalities. There's a number of idiots in there too, but uh, and dopes. But I don't know if it's ten thousand. I mean, that it's something. It's thousands. It's thousands. Is it possible for you to tell me a little bit about a couple of your favorite guests that you've had over the years? Well, it seems like the great cliche now, but uh, Studs Terkel was not only a great radio host now available on the Studs Terkel archive, some 8,000 of his wow. programs. He was a great guest for me, and I'll tell you why in a second. But the best <laughs> best thing on the Studs Terkel archives, from Rick Kogan's viewpoint, is the hour-long interview between Studs Terkel in 1963 and the 22-year-old Bob Dylan. It is an astonishment. Wow. Because... Nobody knows who Dylan is. His first album had come out. He's, he was here. He came to Chicago. He didn't play here. There were no Bob Dylan concert. He may have played down at the USC in some folk hoot nanny or whatever they call them. <laughs> and there's studs beginning the show with, I'm sitting in the studio with a young folk singer. There's some people, they call him a poet, a poet. To me, he looks like the young Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> Dylan's like, uh, and Dylan, Dylan is certifiably the Dylan we have all come to know. It studs at one point, he goes, now you've, you've got this song, the song, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. That's about the acid rain from the bombs and the nuclear fallout. Well, no, actually, it's about the poison beat that is spread f through radio shows and people in the media. <laughs> but would, you, would, you, would you play that song? Would you play the song for us? I, I'd love to hear it. And Dylan, like, well, you know, actually, to sound better on the disc is what he calls his album. Sound better on the disc if you want play that I'd appreciate it well but no 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 I, I want to see I want to see I, I, I'll tell you why after you play it I, and they go through about five minutes of please play it no I don't want to play it please play it until finally you hear on the radio Dylan unpacking his guitar and he plays the song Dylan winds up playing about six songs oh. Stud putting me on his show once because he was my father's best friend when I had done a book called Dr. Nightlife Chicago, which is a collection of saloon columns that I wrote for the Sun-Times uh, long ago, I was 25, 
And he put me on, he's Rick Kogan's here, and I can read Ricardo's, which is where his parents met. I'll read a portion of that. Now here, Rick, you talk about the Earl of Old Town. Let's hear Fred Holstein play some music. And after the hour was over, he said, Rick, what do you think? Did you have fun? I go, Stunts, it was remarkable. It was just so magical about it. What's, what's the secret? I'll tell you the secret. Read the book. <laughs> Read the book. And that has informed me as a journalist and certainly a radio host. Sure. Because you never want to say, I'm sure you guys have never done this, and then good radio people never do this, but I have heard it a million times. So what's your book about? <laughs> Read it. <laughs> what a question. What a question. <laughs> Studs was a great guest, even into his 80s, when, and when he still kept up this steady stream of books coming out, he schlepped down to WGN one Sunday morning when my show was on a Sunday morning to talk about, and they all sang, which was a collection of his interviews at print with musical people, everybody from the young Bob Dylan to Maria Callas and George Schulte. And he was a great talker. He was a great talker. And that's I'm trying to live up to that now. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. <laughs> I won't shut up. Well, you're a great talker <laughs> as well. Do you enjoy being on the other end of the microphone here, interview yeah. microphone? Well, I do. I The thing is, what seems to me to be getting lost in this era of ours is face-to-face communication. Texting and all these Facebooking and emails, it's a really icy form of communication. We have a lot of reporters, too, these days that don't feel it necessary to get out of the office, to Mm. see face-to-face the people they're interviewing, to take, well, thank you very much, Mr. Emanuel, for your statement. Well, that cuts off all sorts of potential insight and potential truth. Today, just for instance, they asked me, there's some, it's called a block party at the Art Institute, like a day-long free events and lectures and other stuff, and I said, would you come down and, and talk about the Picasso, the installation of the Picasso statue? And the problem with me now the is... The one in Daily Plaza. Yeah. And yeah. The, the problem with me now is everybody assumes I've been everywhere. Like, can you come down and talk about that? Same, <laughs> you were at the garage on Clark Street, weren't you, when those guys came in? <laughs> Massacre. You know, you know, you know, Valentine's the, Day. Yeah, yeah. you know uh, the, the old castle that H.H. H. Holmes had on 63rd Street. You must have known that guy. <laughs> well, I was in the plaza on uh, August of 1967 and did see it. So, but it was a chance for me to see some human beings mm. who were interested in the same thing. It was 15 minutes, and it, it was a really worthwhile experience for me. Many of them could barely hear at a certain age, but there were some young kids there, and it, it told me something in a, in a quick... It wasn't anything for me to sit there and remember what it was like and then read Royko's famous column about being there. <laughs> I went there as a teenager. I wasn't driving a cab yet, but I was a teenager and went down there with my father, Studs, and Mike, who were his friends, Mike, a colleague, and Studs was carrying a tape recorder, a tape recording machine that was as big as the old-fashioned boom boxes. Yeah, the big old Wallen socks yeah, or whatever they you were. Probably, yeah, you probably not. I have no oh, idea. Yeah, I used to I, teach I, with those. Yeah, <laughs> it, they, were, they were so unwieldy, but he had a mic, and he's walking up to people going, what do you think of this thing? What do you think? What do you think it looks like? What do you think it looks like? And then Royko went back and wrote one of the most remarkable columns ever, 
And so it was a real joy to see people react to that column today. And that's one of the reasons I there's no money, as you guys obviously know, there's no money in radio unless you're Howard Stern. Mm-hmm. But it, it it keeps me engaged in a certain way. I mean, if a book comes across my desk and I wasn't doing the show, I would find the time not to find the time to read it or a new piece of music. Mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, I'd rather watch uh, you know, golf or something. I don't know what I'd rather watch. But it, it keeps you, for me, the show keeps me engaged. And I don't know who the next person walking through the door, what they will have to say. Did and your that, producer choose the guests? No. Do you do you decide <laughs> no, I, who? No, to, no offense to the producers, no. but the, the first time I did a show on WGN, BZ kind of worked that way. When I did about a year on BZ, I said, you know, who'd be a good guest would be this person. They'd say, well, we want to interview this, and it was it was fine. It was a very creative give and take. <laughs> but once when I started on WGN, and I decided I think to read a Royko column about. You know, I don't know, Christmas or something. The producer, the young producer said, God, that was a really great column. You know, it would have been great if you could have gotten him <laughs> to come on and, like, talk about it. And I said, well, he's dead. <laughs> he's dead. <laughs> and that's when I determined that, well, maybe, maybe, uh, with all due respect to the kids coming out of broadcasting school, I'd, I, I'd probably uh, it'd be wise yeah, for me yeah. to, to book my own guests. Rick, you're a big fan of Chicago theater. Absolutely. Particularly some of the smaller theaters, like a Red Orchid Theater. They don't get much smaller than a Red Orchid. It sure (laughs) does not get much smaller. Frank, you and I went to see their recent show. We did, separately. The the really recent show. The really recent show, Victims of Duty. Duty. With 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 Mike Shannon. With the great Michael Shannon. Yes. That is probably the only time in the history of Ionesco's plays where you had an absolute packed house of <laughs> Ionesco. If he had come, if he came back to life and he walked in that theater, he'd go, what are these people doing here? It's <laughs> one of my absurdest plays. It, it, that's the great thing about Mike, who's a great, a wonderful guy, Shannon, is that he's been through enough struggles and he's now very successful and justifiably so, and he still comes back. Mm-hmm. And does shows like that. Yeah. Does what he wants. He can now do whatever, whatever he, wants. he wants. I mean, literally, yeah. Michael Shannon could say, Michael Shannon, A Red Orchid Theater presents Michael Shannon standing and not moving on stage for, <laughs> an, for an hour and a half, and the theater would be jammed. Mm-hmm. I, I have no doubt about it. And that. it would be compelling. I bet it would. He's got a good face. He's got a good face. He's got a big well, head like movie stars have to have. I'm, yes, yes, he does. But I also understand in the show, you both have seen it, that he literally almost eyeballs everybody in the theater. And it is a small, intimate, intimate space. I love a Red Orchid for that reason. Mm-hmm. The intimacy of that of mm-hmm. that uh, theater is really. And I was something. in the front row. So oh my god! <laughs> I was looking at him like I'm looking at oh you god. right now. Yeah. Did you Did you like the piece, Frank? I did not like the piece. I like the performances. Yeah. And I'm a huge Ionesco fan. I I've directed plays by him. I never quite wanted to do Victims of Duty. I think for the obvious reasons, because it's it's absurdist in the sense that it's like, huh? Whereas something like Paul Soprano or Rhinoceros is absurd, but you're kind of laughing and yeah, thinking right, about right, it afterwards. Right, right, right. This, well, there's like, a there's a reason why Victims of Duty is not usually. 
the no first one, thing that comes no off one's your ever tongue heard of it. When, yeah, you, really. when you say Ionesco. Yeah. However, it is very much in his style, oh, yeah. and yeah. it's got elements of, as you say, the chairs and bald soprano Correct. and rhinoceros in it. Yeah. The husband talks about the nature of art and performance and what it means, and so, you know, Ionesco's kind of getting his philosophy out there and then proceeds to like break all the rules. Played by Guy Van Swearingen. Who was wonderful. Everybody was wonderful. Founder of a Red yeah. Yeah. Theater. Everybody was wonderful. What did you think, Gary? I liked it. I did liked you? it very much. It's kind of right up my alley. I thought they did an amazing job. I particularly liked the production design by this Russian guy named Danila Korogodsky. There was water everywhere. There was a bathtub. <laughs> Full uh, of water. Uh, uh, a, a footed bathtub in the middle of the stage full yeah. of water. There was a pond off stage left. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how they created that or how they keep that water warm or keep if it clean they if they do. But the nature of the water mixing with the idea that this is a memory play and a play about going back into your past and locating things that have been buried for so long. Water and memory are very much associated together Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, metaphors. And And they were crawling around in the water. They were in the bathtub with their clothes on. They were crawling around the pond. This was not dipping a hand in. This was fully immersed. I I gotta ask you too, though. Did you, while you were watching the play, and I know you were concentrating on the play, did you look at the audience as they watched? I, I would not be able to resist that temptation. I did because I was in the middle in the front row and it was three-quarter around, round, sure. so I could glance to the left could, and yeah. glance to the right and see people. And they were like studying it and, you know, watching it, occasionally laughing when yeah. there was something yeah. funny. Yeah. yeah. But none of them were, were like sitting and smiling. They were like a little perplexed, I thought. I'd love to know the conversations after the theater when they go out to maybe try to go to the alehouse where Michael does some drinking after the shows uh-huh. and, and maybe try to meet him. But I could just see some, what the fuck did we go to this? Was this your idea? I don't even yeah. understand. <laughs> Whose idea the was after this? play conversations could be another play. I think they would be fantastic. Well, and Ionesco would love that. In, in a yeah. way, that's no, the that's point. That's true. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to understand. Yeah. You're, Correct. You're not supposed to take this as a linear piece of storytelling. Right. In fact, or it's literal. anti-linear. Yeah. And anti-literal. And they can do anything they want. I did not really understand the one female actress who wanders onto the, the stage maid. about two-thirds of the way through <laughs> and just sat sits there. And yeah. they refer to her, and she has one line, but right. no explanation of where she came from, mm-hmm. what she does, who she is, why she's there. Absolutely yeah. inexplicable. But I enjoyed it. I had good. a good time. Yeah. No, you got to hang with it. You got to just say, oh, this is not going to make any sense from beginning to well, end. And I'm just yeah. going to hang in there. Yeah. But and the performances kept performances everyone interested. The performances yeah. made well, see, it I'm all intriguing. For, I'm all for, if it's Michael Shannon or, or Hamilton, I'm all for people going to live theater. Oh, I, I, think that is, I think that is so essential. It's another one of my worries that as uh, the world gets more technologically sound, that that instead of Hamilton will be it would be beamed directly to your home mm. or your home theater. Yeah. I just love people being together. Rick, let's think back a little bit to your childhood again. What did you used to pretend as a child? Playtime and uh, something. My, I would pretend my mom wasn't drinking. Uh, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> 
Oh that, was, my. that was one of our my brother and our big pretend uh. moments. Uh, yeah, she was a, a wild Irish lass. I, I like any kid. I pretended I was Billy Williams or Ernie Banks, and uh, that kind of did I fantasize? I don't think so. I don't, or I have no memory of having done it. You know, in that era in Chicago, you know, I think I'm probably the last generation that could just grow up kind of unencumbered or unguarded where you would it would be a summer morning and you would say bye ma and she would say be home before it gets dark yeah so that the city itself became this kind of richly textured playground where i didn't have to invent i'd go to we could go downtown for 20 cents we could go to riverview Oh, Riverview. Uh, when you're lucky enough to have gone to Riverview, you really don't have to. <laughs> Your imagination is like right there. Yes, yeah, so we'll, we'll go see the world's fattest man and the bearded lady, and we'll go on a tunnel of love. I mean, Riverview, you, a very famous amusement park right in the heart of the city. Right, Belmont, yeah. right near where Lane Tech uh, is now. Belmont. Yeah, Belmont, the, Western Belmont. On the banks, on the banks yeah. of the uh, north branch of the Chicago River. And it was in the very much in the style of Coney Island and, oh, yeah. and other places. Yeah. Designed a lot famous. for very young children as well. They had a small train, I remember. And they had a train, uh, but it was it most, wasn't designed it was for mostly, children. It was mostly designed for like drunken sailors, I yeah. think. <laughs> uh, that's certainly what it seemed. It was to a me. combination of Kitty Land and a sleazy Carney. David Mamet, since we're talking theater, my friend David Mamet, who I've known for a very long time, once had had the greatest line. We were just talking about Riverview and remembering Popeye, who could pop his eyes out of his sockets at the the Freak House. They had a Freak freak House. So David and I were reminiscing one day, and he said something I one day want to use in a novel sometime. He said, you know, Rick, you know what the great thing was about Riverview? I don't know. There are a lot of great things. He goes, no. The great thing was you could die there. <laughs> and you know, if you've been there, yeah, you know exactly yeah. what he meant. Yeah. Because you'd hear these incredible stories about, did you hear that, that my sister's best friend's cousin stood up on the fire bond and his head was cut off? And I go, no, I didn't hear that. There were all sorts of stories yeah. about people meeting. Some of which might have been true. No, that's, that, see, that's what made it. <laughs> yeah. The great thing about Riverview is that you could die there. <laughs> but so, as a result, I, it, there wasn't, uh, you know, probably until I got into high school, and then I'm confronted with the Democratic Convention, I probably had modest kind of whatever fantasies kids had in the 60s, but, I mean, you, you got to live such mm-hmm. a, I, I got to live, and I, I assume others did too of that era, such a, such a rich real life mm-hmm. that I didn't really have to retreat. You know, and again, in the living room at my parents' parties, you know, you walk in the living room and there's Studs and Nelson and wow. you know, Jim Hogue and Tom Fitzpatrick and other reporters and Willard Motley, the great African-American author of Knock on Any Door and Music Blasting. And it was a very, very scary and seductive scene at the same time for the two Kogan boys who always had to be traipsed in there at some time like 11 o'clock <laughs> by my mother to say good night to all the nice you people. You weren't asked to perform for them, yeah. William. Thank and... God. They had enough performers. Nelson, I remember being a... Marcel Marceau was at our house, for Christ's sake. 
and talking I, or just miming? He was a chatterbug, man. What's chatterbug? <laughs> well, he had it all. He had it all yeah, filled up inside. Up. He had to <laughs> get it out of the other party. <laughs> so I mean, it was. I mean, my my youth was uh, incredibly richly textured. Big Let's umbrella. play a little either or. Get to know you a little bit better, Rick. Sure. Cubs or Chicago White Sox? Sox. Arden? Except the thing is, when you're my age, I mean, when I was a kid. I very much like the Cubs of Ernie Banks and Billy Williams, mm. and I also like the fact that we could walk there from Old Town, and I like the fact that it wasn't owned by the Ricketts family or the Chicago Tribune. And after the six, and they weren't popular, six inning, they just opened the opened the gates, and you just walked in. And oh, saw that's it. right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, you it, was, could, wow. you could, you, it, it was like second acting a musical yeah. on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You could just wow. walk in and right. find a seat. And then uh, very much like the White Sox, because I got to know at a certain point. I, I mean, I th- Louis Aparicio was my favorite baseball player oh. of all time. But I also got to know Bill Veck and Hank Greenberg when they sort of mm. ran the team. And my mother done some something for Greenberg with the Art Institute or something as a collector. And he got to know Bill Veck uh, pretty well. And there's never been a, a, a more forthright, interesting individual in this town. Mm-hmm. When he answered his own phone, be, he was accessible to everybody. Wow. And he read a book a day. Mm. What's not to like? Art Institute or Field Museum? Boy, that's a very good question. I'm going to take the Field Museum. I mean, I was at the Art Institute today, and it's nice, and it's great. And they've got, I mean, like, uh, they got a lot of yeah. nice paintings in there. They even have art. some Tony Fitzpatrick paintings in there. But the Field Museum, because I have very, very distinct memories of being a little kid in the Field Museum, and it got under my skin. And it got so under my skin that, that years later, I'm writing a story about Bushman, the famous gorilla. Yeah. And was maintaining to my editor, M.W. Newman, maybe the best writer, reporter, editor in the history of Chicago, that I had seen. I remembered, so I'd be happy to write about him. He was stuffed at the uh, Field Museum mm-hmm. and some anniversary was coming up. And I was arguing with Bill that I had seen, of course, I'd seen Bushman at Lincoln Park Zoo. And Bill's like, well, when, when were you born? He said, I was born in 1951. He goes, Rick, I'm sorry, and he shows me an obituary. Bushman died on January 1st, 1951. So my whole experience with Bushman is getting to know him stuffed and believing that he is alive. Uh-huh. There's a childhood uh, there's fantasy There's a childhood for me. fantasy So for it's sure. Field Museum. John Wayne or Cary Grant? Cary Grant. Especially because, well, because Royko was such a crazy John Wayne fan. <laughs> he had a life-size cutout of John Wayne in his office holding two guns. And nobody knows this, but the, near the end of Mike's career, he wrote a column stating that to solve the drug problem, what the United States should do is invade Mexico and turn the entire country into a, a gathering of golf resorts. <laughs> Satire. The Latino press did not believe so, and they lit some fuses on various Spanish-speaking radio stations that resulted in, I don't know, maybe 100 people protesting outside the Tribune Tower, blocking Michigan Avenue for a while, burning copies of the paper in the middle of the street, and also holding the, the, the single greatest sign. It's like uh, an UNESCO sign. Hitler is alive and drunk and living in Winnetka. 
<laughs> I, I know, I know kind of what they meant. That's when Mike Lipton went out. And Mike was indeed that day, not in the office. He was playing golf somewhere up near his house. And if anybody had been wise enough to stare at the windows of Royko's office, what they would have seen in the office would be John Wayne <laughs> pointing pistols at them. So Mike's affection for, I mean, I, I admired John Wayne, but I, Cary Grant's an interesting, interesting human being. Oh, yeah. yeah. Superman or Batman? I think Superman. This has to do with the mythology of the comic character. But I do remember seeing the first Superman movie with Christopher Reeve and thinking, well, this is pretty good. I was not a big comic book kid as a kid. I think my father would say, I'll never forget coming back. This is sort of the Herman Kogan method of teaching. I came back from seeing Spartacus at the McVickers Theater downtown. I love that movie. Kirk Douglas, Tony Curtis. Stanley Kubrick Char film. Charles Lyon, yeah, one of Stanley Kubrick's first movies. And saying, Dad, was this Spartacus real or whatever I said? And he would go get an Encyclopedia Britannica and say, here. And that's how I learned much about if I was curious about something, instead of having a dad who would say, yeah, he was, he was, he was great. Yeah. Or, yeah, he like lived a long time ago. <laughs> okay, let me explore. If I get bored reading about him, that's my problem, not, not his. So we'd guide to the encyclopedias and you find out for yourself. Well, my father once thought, when I was drifting through my cab driving years, he had written the history of the Encyclopedia Britannica. He wrote oh, wow. a number. He wrote a number of, of uh, sort of corporate histories to pay for us to have food because he was a newspaper man and he didn't make a hell of a lot of dough. And he thought that I would be a great encyclopedia salesman. <laughs> and I, I, I knew I'd be terrible. I would have been a terrible waiter. I'd be a terrible salesman. And he took me to lunch with a guy who was the most successful encyclopedia salesman who he had met in the course of writing this book. And I can remember about it. My father said, would you possibly show Rick your W-2 form? He had his W-2 form engraved on a piece of platinum in the same size that he pulled out of his wallet. And he had made 400 and $47,000 in the year would have been about 1973. Wow. And I, 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 so for a few seconds, holding the W-2 form made of platinum, I toyed with the idea of becoming an encyclopedia. Because this guy was a dope. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, Jesus, if this guy can do it, maybe I, maybe I can make half that. Uh, it was an incomprehensible figure to me. But he had it, had it, and I don't blame him for having it engraved in platinum. Wow. I mentioned that you're an author as well as all of your other remarkable skills and talents. Uh, I just finished reading your, I think it's 2001 book yeah, yeah. called Everybody Pays, Two Men, One Murder, and the Price of Truth. Co-written co with Maurice Posley, of Indeed. course. Indeed. I, I zipped through this book in about a day and a half. I couldn't put it down. Yeah, thank you. And I, I am as proud of that as anything I've ever done. Maury and I wrote it together, and it's based on uh, one of the great heroes, I think, of the 20th century, a guy named Bob Lowe, who put away 
a man named Harry Alleman, who is, Maury and I have determined, was the most prolific mob hitman in the history of the mob, and that is saying something. It sure is. Yeah, it's a story about that trial, the investigation, what well, happens also, to these two yeah, men. Yeah, and they also the first time that uh, double jeopardy was over, ever, ever overturned in an American courtroom. Wow. This guy was tried for the same crime because the first trial was deemed to have been corrupted by payoffs and by ten thousand dollars to, to the judge, to judge Frank Wilson. Oh, yes, who it's eventually. A, it's a fantastic story. Thank you, thank you. Any plans to make this into a film? Because I think it would be a great movie. Well, there were before the book came out. Harold Ramis, who I knew a little but who had had a very successful movie career at that point, was wanting to get into the executive producer role. So Harold took what is called an option on this book before it was published, meaning that he has the rights for 18 months to try to put together a deal that will turn into a movie. He couldn't get that together. He re-upped for another 18 months, and then he got sick. Uh, I'm not saying that it ever would. My experience with the movie business is do not believe anything any, anything anybody tells you. You are not getting a movie made of your book, product, or life story until you were sitting in a theater watching <laughs> yourself, well, I say yourself the same th- be played by yeah. some incompetent. <laughs> I, I say the same thing about, you know, writing a musical. Don't don't yeah. believe anything yeah. anybody tells you until you're sitting yeah. in the seat on opening I, night. Really, totally. You never Absolutely true. There's so much money in now. You know, the whole notion of, of movies, sometimes there's a, an incredible movie like Get Out that comes mm-hmm. out and it seems to come out of nowhere. But generally, I have the feeling that these idiots are sitting around uh, their studios and their offices, like plowing through old comic books to say, "I think, I think this person, you know, Ant Man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't even know who I don't know who Ant Man is. I cannot imagine ever seeing anything with someone named Ant Man in it. <laughs> and it was the number one movie last week. But I know. <laughs> oh, I know. That's that's the only reason I know there is an Ant Man. Right. Right. I have no interest whatsoever. In the kind of blockbuster <laughs> mentality that, thank God, movies like Get Out can sneak out. Mm. Your paper, the Chicago Tribune, who you've written for for many, many years. Almost 30. Almost, almost 30. Wow. Recently moved out of the Tribune Tower after, what, 96 years there? Yeah. 96 yeah. years in the Tribune Tower. Frank, some bad news for you. I know that you like this show, School of Rock. I did like the show. Yeah. Closing. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's been Closing quite January a few years. 20th, they have recouped their 15 million dollar investment. Good for Andrew Lloyd Webber, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he needs I, the money. He, yeah. he needs it. He's <laughs> desperate. You know, he's been yeah. living hand to mouth oh in one of his 17 palatial <laughs> castles. Wait, this guy though is a phenomenon of our lifetime. Without oh, question, I mean, I'm not a, a huge fan, but I certainly admire someone who can turn out. Hits like that, and yeah. something like School of Rock. I don't know if you've seen it, sure. but it's not at all the romantic, lush, you know, phantomy kind of stuff. It's these kids, you know, based on the yeah, movie, right. and it's hilarious and charming and heartwarming. And I, I really like the fact that he was able to branch out a little bit and do something and have success with it. Yeah, me too. I admire the guy, mm-hmm. but not as much as I admire Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, they started this goofy show about Taft High School in a dump, a former streetcar switching yard on Lincoln Avenue, and it turned into Grease, which was, in its time, the most successful musical yeah. in the history of Broadway. Yeah, yeah. 
a local product. I, I'm sure it's still well produced around oh, the country. Oh, sure. You know, I'm sure. Colleges, as, yeah. as will School of Rock be. Sure. Well, I, I saw believe her. it's going to have a great future yeah. in touring and school productions. I uh, saw the original on Broadway. And I'm at the tail end of the greasers, so I remembered it, and it was raunchy, and it was don't, raw. Don't sell yourself short. I, well, why is that short? <laughs> I, think you, I think you might be right in the middle of the greasers. I was, no, I was not a greaser, but there were greasers in my school. There were greasers you know, was, around me. There were greasers around me, yeah. And then at College DuPage, I directed it in 1981 when it first became available, and I got the script, and it was so sanitized, oh, I yeah. was horrified. Yeah. I'm like, wait, this isn't the grease that I saw. Fortunately, I had bought a copy of the original script. Did you really have the original? I original did. Yeah, not the original original. That's a whole right. other thing, but the original Broadway, I had been so enamored Ameri- that I bought Ameri- it. American Theater Company remounted the original. That's the original two, original. Yeah, the original yeah. original. And that was great. Yeah. But I was able to put all the fucks back in and all the stuff that had been sanitized. So sure. it was one of my first productions there, and I thought, I directed college now because I had taught high school for years, and I can do this kind of stuff. So I went back to the original Broadway, but then I saw the original original which was wonderful you may know the name of this guy the reason i wound up i was driving a cab the reason i wound up seeing the original production of greece about six times is because i really liked it and in the show was an actor a notable uh, local actor named gary houston who was my father's assistant at book week at the sun times and also in it was my best friend from high school's little sister named polly penn she played the prim and proper, whatever. The little that, cheerleader girl. Yeah, the little cheerleader girl. And <laughs> Polly was the only member of the Chicago cast asked to go to New York with that show. Ah. And her mother said no. <laughs> so she really was Patty Simcox. Uh, Simcox in real that's life. Right, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Is that the name of the character? That is. Yeah. Yeah. That, God, that's good. Good news for me on Broadway. Yes. The play that goes wrong, a show that I absolutely oh, loved, love which show. had announced closing, has been extended by popular demand. Oh, great. That's great. Ticket sales have gone through the roof and wow. they're gonna run through January sixth. Any, any reason why that happened? Usually when a play announces it's closing, it would it would take Lynn Manuel Miranda to say don't close it. You usually so, but I think their running costs are very small. Oh, yeah. okay. They have no stars, of course. It's one set that falls apart. Yeah, won, amazing Won set. the Tony Award for Best Scenic yeah. Design. But I also think the word of mouth is great. I've told everybody. Yeah. We saw it in London a couple of years yeah. ago, and then it came here, and I saw it here, and I'm like, oh, you all have to go see this. So I think the word of mouth, hey, you haven't gone yet. You better get in there and see it. It's yeah. closing. Yeah. So Every once in a while, when a like play that. announces it's closing, ticket sales will get a boost. Yeah. Rick, yes. if, you could, if you could have one job for a month, and you could have the skills to do it well. Is there something that you'd like to try that you haven't tried? I'd like to be a heart surgeon for a month if I had the skill to do that because that is, you literally would have the life of another human being in your hands. And the heart surgeon, I'm I'm basing this on some of the heart surgeons that I've met and the way I think you would almost automatically have a different view of the world. Oh, yeah. And a different view of humanity in that situation. That's a very intriguing, very intriguing question. Plus, if somebody from high school who gave you a hard time 
Okay. That's right. Well, I could always make, yes, I can make the uh, operation a little harder than it needed to be if I had that kind of, if I had that level of skill. I'd make it a little yes. harder than You would it have the to skill be. to do yeah, it. That's a very intriguing question. Well, if you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like Rick Kogan, you can go to our website at www.booth-one.com. Uh, that's a dash, and the the one is an O-N-E. One is an O-N-E. Yeah. Thank you, Frank. And click on the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any contribution, of course, would be greatly, greatly appreciated. I'll tell you people something. If any of you would donate $100, I will send you an autographed copy of Everybody Pays. Oh. Wow. Wow. I may have to get out my checkbook right now. Oh my God! I got I know the show's over, but I got to mention one thing. It's like, not over. A couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times, there was an interesting article about how certain books online, Amazon.com, that some of them are being sold for these outlandish figures in a kind of reflection of the "Yes, I am from Nigeria, and you just won a million dollars." That that if you score once, you know, you'll do it. So I look up some of my old books. Dr. Nightlife's, the aforementioned Dr. Nightlife Chicago that Studs had me on his show for in 1978 or 9. It cost $6. I have bought online copies over the years because it's long on a print for 4 or $5. There was, on Thursday, from a bookseller at Amazon.com, a copy of Dr. Nightlife Chicago for 12000 <laughs> And $18. So it, it, my friend Chris Jones, a theater critic with whom I sit next to there, we were both just mystified. And I kept, I have a copy of work. And I kept saying to Chris, I said, Chris, I will give you this one for 10000 <laughs> I will give you my copy the low, for $10,000. The low, low, discounted price. But it's, such, it's a weird phenomenon out there. Most books are incredibly, especially out-of-print books, are incredibly reasonably priced. But this New York Times story said there's a phenomenon going on where to sort of imply that it's a rare item, to find someone who's dead drunk and wants to buy something. And, and it proved true for uh, Dr. Nightlife Chicago. What if it's sold yet? Oh, please. Well, I would not. <laughs> How would I know? I would get nothing from that book. Yeah, but I mean, if you look up and all of a sudden it's gone, it was either yanked or somebody bought it. Well, no, if it's gone, it, it, literally, if, it was, if it's gone... I'm going to go back, find out who that bookseller was, and and say, you owe me money. You owe me money. (laughs) And I've got about 10 more. If you can get me 12,000 a piece. Would you buy, would you like to buy mine for $8? I think that's what it originally was. I sell it for 8,000. You can sell it for 12,000. Win-win. One of your journalistic (laughs) duties at the Chicago Tribune, Rick, is writing an occasional obituary. True. True. We've had Marguerite Fox on the program, who's well-known sure. obituary writer for sure. the New York Times, now sure. sort of retired. She's yeah. writing books now, but every once in a while, one of her advanced pieces will no show question. up. Do you enjoy this form of journalism? Do no. you enjoy that kind of no. remembrance? In some ways, it's a necessary chore, and in many ways, especially with people like Royko and Studs and Ida Turkle, for me, they become the form of a kind of goodbye letter. And as I am telling people who didn't know them something about them with my 
perspective, which which is a unique perspective. I mean, I'd be the best obituary ever written, but I'm putting in there things that I think if someone at a bar said, tell me about this Studs Terkel guy or tell me about this Ida Terkel. So when it's personal, I, I wind up being proud of, of that. But I think part of it, too, is that there aren't people around who, who have the kind of perspective that I think I have. People fade away. When Studs was 93, he uh, decided to go into the hospital to have a redo, in essence, a redo of the quadruple bypass that he had had 20 years before. And I said, Stud, why do you want to do this? Why, why are you doing this? Rick, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel why. Well. If I don't do this, I only got maybe six months to live. And I'm thinking to myself, you're 93 years old. I mean, who could even guarantee you? Who guaranteed you six months, Mike, yeah, for really. God's sake? Right, it's okay. There's a 25% chance I'll check out, meaning die. And I go, okay. So he, uh, he goes in. And a couple of days later, I call him at the hospital, and he answers the phone. He says, that's a trick. He goes, Rick, I'm a medical miracle. A medical miracle. Do you hear me? I, I'm the oldest man to ever have this operation done. I said, well, I'm sure you are, so that's great, blah, blah, blah. You got to write about this. You'll save lives. And I said, I don't like to write about friends. And he goes, no, talk to my doctor. So I talked to his heart surgeon, a guy named Marshall Golden. And I said, is this true? Marshall head heart surgeon at Rush, Saint Rush, I think it's now just Rush, and said, yeah, Rick, I, I, I do not know anybody. I've not heard of anybody over about 88 who's ever had this operation. But, you know, the technology is getting to be such that it's not, not that risky. And a six-hour operation on a 93-year-old wow. who, as far as I know, never did any exercise except you know, lifting an occasional cigar. <laughs> and so I made some calls around the country to find out, and I, I couldn't get anybody any big-time doctor to tell me that they knew of anybody over mid-'80s who had had this done. So I did write a, a piece, and I'm walking to the, the bus stop the next morning, and there's a nice woman I used to take the bus with there, maid in one of the buildings downtown, and she's crying. And I go, what's the matter? She goes, oh, Rick, I'm so sorry. And she's holding up the newspaper. So sorry about your friend, Stud Turkle. I go, What? Oh, Rick, you, you must be in some kind of denial. I go, what are you talking about? She goes, Rick, they don't put no 93-year-old uh, photo of a man unless he's dead. <laughs> I said, no, he's not dead. He's a medical miracle. <laughs> <It's such laughs> read the story. Right, right. Read the story. But that's it. I mean, some studs remained active until he was 96. I mean, all the way to the end. But others, not so much, and they fade away. One of the things that disappoints me about the Tribune these days, as opposed to the New York Times, is they, they do not give what I would consider ample space to obituaries. We maybe, maybe one a day, maybe one a day. Just recently, two that I did were on the very same morning, Art Shea, legendary photographer, and Nelson Algren's running buddy, who did remain pretty active into his 90s. He died an hour before a man named Art Paul, both in their 90s. Art Paul, arguably much more famous than Art Shea, but in, in indeed much more self-effacing, too, because it, uh, Art Shea was not self-effacing. He was a nice guy, but not self-effacing. Art Paul is the man who was the first person Hugh Hefner hired for a new magazine he was starting called Playboy. Mm. And in a tiny loop office, 
in 20 minutes after Hefner said, we don't, I don't really have a name for this magazine. They were, wanted to call it Stag Party, but they, there was some copyright infringement. And he said, well, you know, maybe we should call it Playboy. These two guys are deciding this together. We call it Playboy, and we need maybe some kind of logo. In 20 minutes, Art Paul came up with that bunny. <laughs> 20 minutes. Wow. Nobody just did that with the Nike swoosh. Yeah, really. That was probably 8,000 people. (laughs) And art dictated the look of that magazine for its first 25 years when it it employed every... There was so much money at Playboy, if you guys had written a a story about this podcast, let's say, he would call Andy Warhol and go, we're doing a story about a podcast. Will you do something for us? I mean, incredibly influential. Yeah. so One of I the wrote, great art directors of oh, all time. Oh, God, yeah. And a, and a lovely guy, but he got sort of a little addled in later years and wasn't out much, and so they fade away. And so I think in, in the cases where there are people I don't know very much, it's really nice to remind people in print that these giants walk. I think the beauty of your writing pieces like that is your personal touch, Thank your you. personal knowledge of the person. You know what it's like? It's like the... I don't have to, I've read the book. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When I write the obits, I've read mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. And I think that does, it, it, it gives it a different kind of element to the just dry recitation of facts oh, and yeah. pulling old quotes from newspapers and magazines. Yeah. Well, Frank, we usually end our episodes with our kiss of death segment, but I think we're running a little long this week. Okay. And that was... Uh, What's I a kiss of death segment? It is died. a remembrance of someone significant yeah. that has died. Which and you just did. So yeah. that's which you great. just did. Which I've rattled for. off all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, Studs, Mike, uh, yeah, the two arts. Yeah. yeah the so two I, arts. I, was, I was going to do Adrian Cronauer, who was the disc jockey yeah. that provided the rough outline for the character played by Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam. Vietnam. Ah. Yeah. So yeah. should we save, the line. save him for next time? We'll save him for another time. I want to thank Rick Kogan oh, for being so our guest fun, today. This was so fun. Uh, I'm and, sure and this gonna, will be one of our more popular episodes. Now, when you listen to this show, which will be up like, I don't know, we, well, it's, a week. It's, it's eternal. It's eternal. Yeah. Yeah. These two characters are going to come on my show, mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about this specific podcast. Wow. Well, we appreciate that. As I mentioned, our website, visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program and your hosts. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranjo. And Mr. Rick Kogan, thank you again. Oh, my pleasure. This was great fun, you guys. Saying so long and keep listening. <laughs>